Lead to Win is brought to you by Leaderbox, a monthly reading experience curated by leaders for leaders. Learn more at leaderbox.com. On a bitter cold January day, women and girls from around the country gathered at a courthouse in Lansing, Michigan. Some were athletes, others were high school students, some white, some black, some married, some single. Most had never met before, but they had one thing in common. They had all been sexually assaulted by the same man. Larry Nasser, who had been the USA Gymnastics national team doctor and a physician at Michigan State University, had pled guilty to seven counts of sexual assault. The women were there to make victim impact statements at his sentencing. Nasser had been accused of assaulting dozens of young athletes, all girls, including at least four Olympic gold medalists. As the girls, now grown women, recounted how the doctor they trusted assaulted them over a period of 25 years, onlookers reacted with shock and outrage. How did this happen, many wondered. How could this abuse go undetected for so long? However, the abuse was not undetected, according to some reports. There were credible claims that trainers and coaches had received complaints about Nasser dating back years but he was highly trusted and highly valued by trainers, coaches, and administrators. According to one victim, a trainer responded to her complaints by pointing out that Nasser was a world-renowned physician and that his abusive behavior was a legitimate medical treatment. Nasser's work was so highly valued that in 2014, the president of USA Gymnastics said he was instrumental to the success of the team, both on and off the field of play. When complaints escalated, Nasser was allowed to quietly retire from the team but he simply continued to molest girls at other institutions. To date, some 250 women and girls have come forward, many alleging that their complaints were ignored or covered up. But this isn't a story about Larry Nassar, an obvious sexual predator. It's a story about the leadership culture that surrounded and enabled him. We've seen similar stories involving child abuse in the Catholic Church, in the case of Penn State, and in the case of Harvey Weinstein. So the question every leader must ask is this, what's the result when an institution values reputation or success over personal character? Hi, I'm Megan Hyatt Miller. And I'm Michael Hyatt. And this is Lead to Win, our weekly podcast to help you win at work, succeed at life, and lead with confidence. In this episode, we're going to talk about the character of a leader. This is obviously a very timely issue because all of us want to be successful as leaders. But sometimes we face situations that pit our desire for results against our better values. And in this episode, we'll help you recognize that temptation and do the right thing, even when it's costly. By doing so, you'll avoid doing damage to your organization and your reputation, and you'll build a lasting legacy of success. To start off, we'll explore some of the questions surrounding the culture of our organizations and our character as leaders. And in the second half of the podcast, we'll ask a really hard question. How good can we really be? So, Meg, this is a really heavy story. Mm -hmm. In fact, as you were reading that, I was tearing up. I think probably because as the father of five daughters, I can just empathize with what that must have been like. But this really, as you said, is not a story about Larry Nassar. I mean, he's obviously at fault. He's a sexual predator. But I kept 
asking myself as I watched this story unfold on television, what about all these other leaders in this organization, in the USA Gymnastics organization? Where were they? Why wasn't anyone speaking up in the midst of this? And I know in retrospect, it's easy to, to cast stones, but I think it's a cautionary tale for all of us. I think so too. That it's not these outliers like the Larry Nasser. I mean, obviously they need to be dealt with, but it's all of us. What kind of organizations, what kind of cultures, what kind of world are we building? We all have responsibility in that. And yeah. it begins with us. Right. It's really about what are we willing to tolerate and allow on the way to success? Great point. I think that's the big question. So on the flip side, what actually constitutes good character? Yeah, well, there's a basic definition of character, and this is from Christian Miller from his book, The Character Gap. He says, do the right thing. In other words, be kind, be generous, be patient, whatever it is. Do the right thing in the right way, so with integrity, with humility, for the right reason, for others, not self-gain. You know, we don't do the right thing because of what it's going to bring us or how successful it's going to make us. Because if that's really your idea of goodness, then it really means that if it doesn't work, you'll change your strategy and do something right. else, right? So goodness is its own reward. And so do the right thing in the right way for the right reason all the time. Mm -hmm. It's consistency. I think this is something that so many people have lost sight of today. They think that they've done this good thing over time, and then they make one, quote, mistake and all of a sudden, they lose their position of leadership or lose their position of influence. But that's just the way that it works. Mm -hmm. And that's what we got to recognize. There's a huge cost when we do the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. And so doing the right thing, little by little, you know, we're sowing the seeds um, of the organizations, of the cultures that we're creating, of the world that we're creating. So why do you think it's hard for leaders to do all four of those things right? Well, I think there is so much pressure to succeed. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I know that we have listeners from all over the world, but here in America in particular, success is like the ultimate value. Mm -hmm. And everything gets sacrificed at the altar of success. And so uh, it's rare anymore, especially when you start losing moral absolutes mm -hmm. and everything becomes relativistic, then what's it relevant to? It's relevant to me and to my success, to my notion of right and what's wrong. And that's not a very good reference point. There needs to be something transcendent uh, that we're accountable to. Mm -hmm. And with no accountability, all kinds of bad things happen. And that's exactly what you saw in the Larry Nasser situation. Nobody was holding him accountable. Right. Well, it's also important to remember that doing the right thing doesn't always result in a, you know, quote, ROI. Like, it doesn't always turn out well for you. Sometimes it means you're actually going to lose and there is no upside. It doesn't get returned to you. It doesn't turn out well. It, it costs you something personally as a leader or organizationally that you're not going to get back. And so if there's not something behind your desire to do the right thing just because it's right, like if you're only doing the right thing, quote unquote, um, so you can guarantee your own success or your success in the eyes of others, that's not going to go very well. That You're not going to be able to be consistent because at the end of the day, what makes you able to do the right thing is your commitment to doing what's right regardless of the consequences. That's right. And that has to be its own reward, mm -hmm. right? Yes. So I had a situation when I was the publisher of one of Thomas Nelson's imprints, Thomas Nelson Publishers. And we had an author, a very high-profile author, who began to teach 
this doctrinal position that was at odds with really mainline traditional Christianity. Mm -hmm. And I won't go into the details of that, but let me just say that this was core. It was foundational. And so the first I heard about it is somebody in church mentioned it to me that they had heard her spouting off about this. And what did I think about it? I said, well, that can't be possibly true. I mean, this author's not a theologian and it's, it's probably fine. And I kind of dismissed it. Then I started getting calls from the media and they were wondering about it. How in the world Thomas Nelson, a faith-based mm-hmm. publisher, was going to publish this author that it was espousing something so contrary to the Christian faith. And so I thought, wow, I've got a problem. So I decided to go meet with this author. And I sat down with her, along with my boss at the time, who was not the CEO of the company, but my boss, who was between me and the CEO. And so I asked her about it. And I just assumed that maybe she had bungled the communication or she didn't really understand what was at stake. And so I said to her, I said, look, I've got the media calling me. And I said, I don't know exactly what you said because I haven't heard these recordings, but I just want to give you an opportunity to clarify your position on this particular doctrine. Well, she went after it with unbelievable energy. She talked nonstop for two hours, basically attacking this core uh, teaching of the Christian faith. And I I mean, I I could just feel the color draining from my face because I was a brand new publisher. I'd only been in my position 30 days. We had paid this author a million dollars in a royalty advance for a book that we thought was going to be massively huge. We had already printed the book. Wow. And so we had... I don't know what it was. It was over 100,000 copies of the book that we had printed, which was a large printing. Right. And so here I'm facing that I have to pull the plug on this book with serious financial repercussions. You had a lot to lose. I had a lot to lose. And I was in a division that really couldn't afford to lose it. You know, we were not doing so well at the time, and I was trying to turn it around. So I, I left, and my immediate boss said to me, wow. He said, so what do you think we should do? And I said, I think we got to pull the book. And he said, I don't know. He said, I think, you know, has she said anything in the book that's offensive? And I said, no, but we're giving her a platform where she can espouse this and it's going to be connected, you know, the two. We're giving her credence by publishing it and we just, we can't do that. And so he said, well, I think you're wrong. He said, I think you're overreacting. I thought I'm going to lose my job over this, Yeah, you know, because he knew what was on the line. And it was going to reflect on him as well as upon the entire mm-hmm. company. And he wasn't willing at the time to suffer the financial setback. Hmm. And so he said, uh, he said, I really think you, you need to think about this because I think you're kind of grandstanding here. I mean, he was right in my wow. face about it. I was getting wow. the opposition internally. So I went home. I talked to Gail. I, I told her the whole situation. She said, honey, I don't care if you do get fired. She said, this is the right thing to do. And you just need to go do it and be brave. Well, I wasn't that brave. I mean, I didn't feel that brave. I didn't feel that courageous. But I went in the next day and I talked to my immediate boss and I said, look, I think we need to pull the book. If you don't agree with me, then I I can't work here. I said, I'm not trying to grandstand. But I said, to me, it's a a fundamental matter of conscience. Mm -hmm. And I just, I can't do it. And he was like, whoa. He said, well, he said, I don't know. He said, I need to think about that. I went back to my office. I told my assistant, I said, get some boxes. I need to, I need to pack. (laughs) I said, oh. I, I, I really felt like I was about to be fired. Right. So about an hour later, as I'm kind of sulking in my office, wondering what the heck is going to happen, I get a call from the CEO. So it was my boss's boss. Right. And he said, tell me about this situation. So I explained the whole situation to him. And he said to me, uh, Mike, you're doing the right thing. 
pull the plug. Wow. And I mean, I just, I could not believe it. And so again, it was hugely expensive. There was no upside. You know, that cost is tremendously. We had to flush all that inventory. We had to flush the royalty advance, all of that. But it was absolutely the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And the thing about it that I didn't realize at the time, and I certainly didn't do it for this reason, that very act created culture. Right. Because all the people that were watching, wondering what we're going to do, the people inside my company were secretly, I think, kind of hoping that somebody yeah. would do the right thing, even in the face of financial loss. And they celebrated it. And that story was told over and over again. But there are oftentimes when we have to make a decision like that, and usually we don't know what the consequences are going to be. Mm-hmm. We don't know if there's ever going to be an upside. And even in that situation, it's kind of a silver lining in a cloud, right? I mean, because there was, from all the objective standards, financially, it was it was terrible. But it was totally the right thing uh, to do. And looking back on it, I don't regret for a second having made that decision. Well, it's funny because that story happened probably more than 20 years ago yeah. at this point. And even still, it's influenced our culture at Michael Hyatt and Company. Now, all these years later, we have a core value of unyielding integrity that says we tell the truth, taking responsibility for our mistakes and failures, and we honor our commitments even when it's difficult, expensive, or inconvenient. Yeah. And I think in that case, you honored your commitment to your faith and your personal integrity at a very high cost. Yeah. So as a reminder, that definition of good character that we're working with here is doing the right thing in the right way for the right reasons all the time. Now, let's shift our attention to why does integrity matter in the first place? Yeah, and I think in the current context, this is a question we have to ask. You know, I took it for granted for years that character counts, and I think most of our culture did. And yet, we've seen the steady erosion of that over time. Mm -hmm. You know, it's probably the most pronounced in politics. I think this is why people are so cynical about the political sphere, because they see that people will say anything or do anything to get elected. They'll do anything or say anything to stay in office. Mm -hmm. But we've seen it also in Hollywood. We've seen it in corporate America. We've seen it, sadly, in churches. We've seen it in a lot of places. But I think so often, we place the priority on success. And again, another corporate story I had, we had another executive in another company I was working at who was one of the highest performers in the in the company. And he consistently beat his budget. Um, he was known for the fact that he could deliver the numbers. And yet, then I find out that he's doing these things like calling some of the female staff in the middle of the night, saying incredibly inappropriate things to them. Hmm. And for a while, nobody was reporting it, and then right. it bubbled up to me. Yeah. And you know, in those situations, you go, how could this be tolerated? Well, it's like Matt and, Lauer. Uh, right. Exactly. Yeah. And and I even, I mentioned it to my boss in that situation, and he said, well, do you really have any proof? I mean, he like just poo-pooed it. It's like people really don't want it to be true. They don't want it to be true. Yeah. Because it, it costs and, In fact, the first question he asked me, he said, you realize he's producing $15 million worth of profit for this company every year. I mean, that like that should impact the like decision. Like that's our price. Right, that's our price. And I said, yeah, I know that, but this is unacceptable. I have female staff that are complaining to me about this. Right. And this wasn't the only situation. So, you know, eventually we did fire him, but it wasn't easy. Mm-hmm. Why? 
because character didn't really count, or it only counted if... If you weren't having to choose between profit and character. Right. All right. So sometimes when we make these decisions to uh, exercise good character, there's a cost involved. But do you think there's always a choice between character and success? I don't. I think it's a false dichotomy. I think sometimes the success that we're looking at is the short-term success. Mm-hmm. And we fail to realize that we're sacrificing long-term success mm-hmm. by looking over character, by not paying attention to character. Mm-hmm. So for example, in that situation I told earlier about that author, so our division went from number 14 to number one over the next 18 months. Hmm. And it wasn't some magical thing. I think it was because all of a sudden people were engaged. They realized that we were serious about the mission. We were serious about uh, what we said we believed. Mm -hmm. And everybody was all hands on deck. It creates a high trust environment. It does. And I think that's true in the story of Matt Lauer as well. The ratings for the Today Show are apparently up. You know, and you can only imagine in an audience full of female viewers that making that hard decision did nothing but ensure their confidence in the brand of the Today Show and the new anchors for that program. Yeah, I think at the front end of the decision, when you're making a decision where it's all about character and it looks like you're going to be sacrificing a short-term gain, Mm -hmm. you've got to decide that it doesn't matter. It's really a question about value. You're saying, look, personally, I value my own integrity. Mm-hmm. I value character more than the short-term success. And even if there's no long-term success, I've got to do the right thing. I've got to live with myself. I've got to have a conscience, right. right? And so, you know, sometimes it turns out well. I think sometimes we undersell that and make a false dichotomy. But that doesn't mean it's a guarantee that it's always going to turn out well. Right. And still, you've got to be convicted to do the right thing. Yeah, it's kind of like what you know, the legendary UCLA basketball coach John Wooden said. He said, be more concerned with your character than your reputation because your character is what you really are while your reputation is merely what others think you are. This is important in the age of social media. Yep. Right? Where you can very carefully sculpt mm-hmm. your reputation in social media Yep. and get people to perceive one thing that is completely out of alignment with who you really are. Mm-hmm. And I know people that are just like this. You know, and you've got people that are out there uh, putting themselves on a platform as a very successful entrepreneur or whatever, successful in any uh, field of endeavor. But the reality is they could be a mess. Well, one of the things that I think is really important for leaders to remember is that there's probably no greater asset that you have than the trust of your team. You know, in our leader box uh, for February, we had a book called The Loyalist Team, which is really all about the culture that develops around trust Mm -hmm. when it's there or when it's not there on a team. And if a leader has a trust of their team and the team trusts one another because there's integrity in the mix – what you're able to accomplish in terms of success is so much greater with that kind of alignment than you ever could if there's cynicism or doubt or mistrust or a lack of character. So I think this is one of those um, leadership characteristics that if you'll work on and work hard on and be committed to will benefit you greatly, not just in terms of your own legacy, but in the effectiveness of your team. Yeah, so true. And I think our people know a lot more than we give them credit for sometimes. Sure. You know, they see what's what. They sense whether or not you've got moral integrity, whether character counts, whether you're making willing to make the tough decision or not. Right. Okay, so what do you think are the tests that every leader is going to face? So there's a really helpful model that comes out of the world of law enforcement called the fraud triangle. Hmm. And here's how it works. There's a need. 
then there's an opportunity, and then there's a rationalization. So we were talking to Larry on our staff. He used to be a pastor. Mm -hmm. And he talked about this sometimes happens in churches where you have an embezzling situation where somebody has a need, a need for money. Like maybe they're going to get evicted from their apartment or rental home. Yeah. Or it could be anything, Mm -hmm. right? And then they have an opportunity. There's loose financial controls. Nobody's going to really, you know, look over their shoulder and they're hoping to pay it back before it's ever discovered. I know a situation just like this. I had a guy for me one time that did this very thing. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. And then there's the rationalization. You know, I'm going to get invic- evicted out of my of my home mm-hmm. or I'll, I'll pay, pay it, it back, back later yep. or I'm not appreciated here and I was promised that raise and I didn't get it. I mean, it could be a thousand one things. Right. But anytime you start falling into that kind of thinking, we're not talking about the people out there. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the person in here mm-hmm. because all of us are just one stupid decision away yep. from bankrupting ourselves morally and negatively impacting our legacy, our families, our organizations, and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really helpful model because the truth is we're all going to be in a, in a situation where those things are going to be in play. Mm-hmm. And if we're not wise to it, we're going to fall prey to them. You know, sexually, for example, in a office setting, you know, you may have a marriage that's not doing well. You know, you may mm-hmm. feel underappreciated at home. There's your need part. You may be in a one-on-one situation with a coworker and there's your opportunity for a sexual encounter of some kind. And then rationalization, well, if my spouse were just whatever, or if I were just appreciated more at home, mm-hmm. then I wouldn't need to do this. Or nobody's ever going to find out, or it's been a really long week, or you know, yep. what, whatever you would fill in the blank with, there you go. And before you know it, you've kind of fallen down into a very slippery slope that's hard to find your way out of. So it's like that HALT acronym that some people use in recovery, which says that you're the most vulnerable when you're hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. It's like we know this for our toddlers, <laughs> but we need to know this of ourselves because it's equally true for right. adults. Yep. All right. So, Dad, in a few minutes, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about whether or not it's possible to improve your character. But before we do that, I want to take a quick break and I want you to tell us about something that's really exciting that's happening this week. Yeah, so public registration for my productivity course, Free to Focus, is now open. And I know a lot of people have been waiting months to get into this because we only open registration twice a year. But Free to Focus is a nine-module video course that teaches my signature productivity system. And it's really different, I think, Mm -hmm. than anything else out there because it's not about how to get more stuff done or how to work faster. It's about achieving more by doing less. And it's really about having more freedom in your life. So it's about the freedom to be focused. I mean, to absolutely focus on something and do quality work and not be distracted by 101 things. It's about the freedom to be present with the people that you love the most. So you're not distracted by your devices at the dinner table, for example. (laughs) Or the freedom to be spontaneous so that you're not so structured, so over-calendared that you don't have the free time to be able to spend with the people that matter the most in your life. So in Free to Focus, I teach you how to focus on the high leverage tasks that will really move the needle in your business and your personal life. And so all you got to do is go to freetofocus.com to sign up. Now registration closes tomorrow night, March the 28th, and it will not be open for another six months. So I think the final question for this episode is, is it really possible to live a life of character? And if so, 
how the heck do we do it? Because so many people fail. I know. And especially if we watch the news right. and see what's happened in our culture, it's very easy to go to the place where we think, well, look, it's inevitable. Right. You know, all of us are going to slip and it just kind of happens to you. You're especially if you're a leader. That's right. Mm-hmm. Especially if you're a leader. But I absolutely think you can live a life of character, but like so many other things in life, you've got to be intentional. So I think it begins with you as the leader, knowing where true north is. Mm -hmm. What is your set of non-negotiables? And I'm talking about moral things. What is your set of non-negotiables? For me, and this is just my faith tradition, this is one of the reasons I read the Bible every day. Right. It's just because I don't want to only submit myself to sort of the cultural whirlwind Mm -hmm. and all the moral relativism that tends to get people confused. But I want to know where true north is. You know, I want to know that these absolutes, which have shaped civilization and have served people for so long, for so well, not that it's not without problems. I mean, we talked about things in the church, but I think for individuals, I think this can shape our character. So we've got to know where true north is. We've got to have a moral compass. Second thing, surround us with people that share our values and to whom we give permission to hold us accountable Yeah. so that they call us out. And make you're very good at, at, at this with me. <laughs> No, seriously. But but I want people in my company, I want people in my church, I want people in my family to call me to account when I'm not living my values. Well, this is why leaders get in trouble very often at the highest levels, because they have built a circle around them of yes people. Right. No one will challenge them, and there's no accountability. Well, that's one of the things that I'm the most proud of in my family, mm-hmm. is that I have definitely not built a, a family full of uh, yes, people. You know, you guys challenge me constantly. Yeah. And if I get a little bit of out of, out of alignment with my character, you guys are the first ones uh, to call me out on that. And I yep. appreciate that very much. But I think it comes down to, and this would be the other part of doing it intentionally, it's as simple as making the next right choice, mm-hmm. right? And if you can do that over a long period of time, just train yourself. It's like anything else. It's like any other habit. You know, I don't think about some of the basic habits like brushing my teeth. You know, that just comes natural because I've trained myself to do it. Frankly, a pretty unnatural act, but I've trained myself to do it. Mm -hmm. But the same thing is true with these moral choices. You know, that as you make the right decision, it gets easier uh, over time. Well, I think especially when you come back to an absolute standard of where you know you're not going to compromise, when situations arise and they're in conflict with those values, you already know what decision you're going to make. You're not really making a decision about whether or not you're going to be in alignment with your values because you've already said that's the most important thing. I'm not compromising. And everything else has to come after that. So it it, it makes it simpler, if not easy. Today, we've talked about the character of a leader, and we've discovered that character is a non-negotiable aspect of great leadership. As we come in for a landing, I just want to remind you that it's always best to do the right thing, even when it's costly or inconvenient. You do have the courage to make good choices. So, Dad, do you have any final thoughts for us today? Yeah, we started by talking about Larry Nasser, and it's Mm -hmm. very easy to see that situation and focus on him. And we started by saying that all of us have a role. The reason there are Larry Nassers in the world is because a lot of us who are leaders let that, let that happen. Mm-hmm. A lot of us who are leaders let that happen. And we can't let that happen. We've got a role to play. And it's not just our own legacy it's, that's at stake. It's not our own future, but it's our communities. Mm-hmm. It's our institutions. If we don't stand up and do the right thing when it's tough, then we're going to reap the whirlwind. Very often, the consequences are far worse than financial. Yep. That story illustrates that. 
As we close, I want to thank our sponsor, Leaderbox. It provides automated personal development in a box. Check it out at leaderbox.com. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, you can get the show notes and a full transcript online at lead2.win. Thanks again for joining us on Lead to Win. If you like the show, please tell your friends and colleagues about it. Also, leave us a review of the show wherever you listen to podcasts. That really helps with the visibility of the show. This program is copyrighted by Michael Hyde and Company, all rights reserved. Our producer is Nick Jaworski. Our writers are still Joel Miller, Lawrence Wilson, Mandy Raviccio, and Jeremy Lott. And our recording engineer is Mike Burns. Our production assistant is Alicia Curry. And our intern is Winston. Who is Winston? Can't say. We invite you to join us for our next episode, where we're going to be discussing the law of replication and its impact on your leadership. Until then, lead to win.